the people who are on call and operating the system are sort of the people living on the edge of all the decisions that have been made by the organization until that point. It's one of the things that's sort of unique about software in that there's a lot of information, a lot of parallel work, and a lot of way to send that information everywhere at the same time. And that pattern of authority breaks down really, really rapidly in the software world. Hi, I'm Liz Fong-Jones. I'm Charity Majors. And I'm Jessica Kerr. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or OlliCast for short, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. OlliCast is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups bring our developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OlliCast. That's at O-11-Y-C-A-S-T. So, like, what what is Incident Commander, Fred? Like, what does that mean? God, what doesn't it mean? Uh, incident Command is going to be anything, really, that's going to touch the sections between how you organize the response and muster up all the resources that you need to fix a sort of incident that might be ongoing. Uh, and so it's going to have all the definitions that everybody in the world can think of in terms of what do we want in terms of authority and accountability for an incident. And so in some cases, it's facilitation. And in some cases, it's who do you blame for things and everything. What do we mean by it at Honeycomb? What does incident commander mean at Honeycomb? Yeah, Honeycomb is still small enough that we don't have people trained specifically in the incident commander role. And so it's a hat that people can wear from time to time uh, when they jump into an incident and people feel that, oh, this is going to be high pace. It's going to have a lot of events, a lot of things to track. We need someone in charge of doing that coordination right now. And by incidents, we mean anytime the software isn't working right? Oh, that, that's another like endless trapdoor that leads to everything. <laughs> uh, I will use the definition of incident as uh, something happening that distracts you from your planned work. Ah. Oh, that's a great definition. I will avoid the definition where it has user impact because a lot of incidents can be massive in response, but have absolutely nothing to do with customers even knowing something is wrong. And sometimes... Things become wrong if the response has not managed to, you know, turn the ship around in right time or something like that. This sounds like a great time for both of you to introduce yourselves. How about we start with Fred? Yes, so I'm Fred Hebert, uh, and I'm the site reliability engineer here at uh, Honeycomb. I'm here because I care a whole lot about incidents, things going wrong, and I, I'm one of the people who, I don't know, see a show with explosions. It's like, oh, I'd like to know how that happened and everything and dig into that. Uh, I'm Jessica Kerr, Jessitron on Twitter, and I'm a host of the OlliCast now because I'm a developer advocate at Honeycomb. Our newest host. Hooray! I'm so happy to have both of you here. This is really exciting for me. You know, Honeycomb has a reputation for being a very opsy company because what we do is we let you outsource a lot of ops stuff to us, right? But Fred is actually our one and only actual SRE. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic because uh, this is also the first time I've ever been SRE. I've been a software engineer who dealt a lot with operations in the past, but I came here uh, for the first time as an SRE and I worked with a lot of people who were SRE or managing SRE teams and are now software engineers at the same time. So there's a very interesting dynamic in this one compared to uh, other places I've been at where SRE was the center of expertise for all of that. Yeah, uh, It's much more widely distributed with Nanacom as far as I can tell. 
Nice. Well, so let's go back to like, you know, I see is like, uh, like start, but, and I see can in a lot of contexts be an individual contributor. And here, of course, in this podcast, it means like incident commander. So like, how did the IC role evolve here? Like in the beginning, there were just like a few engineers, like how did we decide that somebody needed to have a specialized role in all of this? Right. So that's a bit of a funny one because the, as far as I can tell, the incident commander role comes from much, much bigger organizations, which frequently had these issues and things like that. And it became a pattern, mm. especially around natural disasters, uh, forest fires, floods, and everything like that. Mm. Oh, that makes more sense. Yeah. So you, you needed to deal with people who could find the right response. If you need multiple fire departments, the trucks, the things, the tents for the refugees and everything like that, you might be thinking of things that talk to multiple departments, multiple government authorities, civilians, military, stuff like that. Mm. And you needed someone to sort of own the entire thing and send that through. And so in these organizations, it can be a very, very strict role with explicit protocols to talk about all sorts of agencies. Mm -hmm. And it gets to be used in a kind of watered watered down form into a lot of software companies where it becomes that thing where you own the incident, but it can be a lot more about collaboration or uh, coordination of the response. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some companies, the bigger ones, will have things like... uh, tech leads, communications managers, people who deal with incident liaison, people who deal with the emergencies. You might have people who talk to you in the legal department, depending of the type of incident you have. Right. And then in smaller companies, either you have nothing at all or you have the role which is like extremely ill-defined, but (laughs) necessary depending on the pace of the incident at hand. So something that jumps out at me from, I I had this doc that you wrote about being a commander is, uh, at the very top in italics, it says, ICs do not troubleshoot. They help people who troubleshoot do so effectively. Oh, so so you have people who are down in the weeds troubleshooting. And the IC's job is to not get in the weeds, but to be above that and able to uh, liaise. Above the weeds. Yeah, I think that's the, the effective pattern. Uh, there are places, um, I believe, which have a more authority-driven way of solving issues where the incident commander is the person who decides which solutions are good or not. So before taking corrective actions, they are there to check and make sure that you know it's not going to be a liability, that the right type of decision is being made. And so they have that sort of uh, authority to pick a solution over a different one. And that can lead to a way to defer authority to the commander, and they can become a bottleneck uh, in some cases, which in some incidents is fine if the pace at which you need to make decisions is slow enough to allow that. Uh, I think it's Dr. Laura McGuire has super interesting research about that if you want to check her name up, but it's one of the things that's sort of unique about software in that there's a lot of information and a lot of parallel work and a lot of way to send that information everywhere at the same time. And that pattern of authority breaks down really, really rapidly in the software world. Mm. So coordination ends up being more effective. Interesting. So like, is it important that I see know the domain intimately or, or no? Uh, I think in general, it makes sense to know the domain intimately just because you don't want to be interrupting all the responders all the time to explain to you what it is that they're doing. You understand the actions they are taking, the moves they're making. You're able to get the relevance, but really your role there is to make sure that what they're doing is aligned with what everybody else is doing. Right. So the more shared context you have, the better you're going to be at communicating quickly and effectively. And that counts both with the engineers 
troubleshooting things down in the weeds and with like legal. Right. Yeah. That's the other thing I was, I was thinking about. Like, it, it seems like a very important part of this job is being able to translate, right? Being able to switch codes, switch context, because you've got a lot of stakeholders here and not all of them are engineers. You've got the marketing folks, you've got the customer success folks, you've got people who are talking to, you know, your biggest contracts, you've got legal, you've got, you know, and when do these people need to know things, right? That's partly a science and it's partly an art, but you, you have to know at least, you, you have to be able to switch modes in your head in order to be effective for, you know, all of these people. Yeah, and even in smaller companies like Honeycomb, it does happen that there's a lot of communications to be had on top of tracking everything. Mm -hmm. uh, so the incident commander just picks someone to also be in charge of communications, um, updating the status pages and stuff like that, and mm -hmm. keeping in mind, you know, that we need to get frequent updates and stuff like that, uh, so that they can focus on the actual incident resolution steps and coordination there as well. So when an incident happens, what is it? All hands on board? Everybody drops what they're doing and jumps in to help? I think that's how it is when you're a really, really small company, right? If you have something like fewer than 10 engineers, you just page everyone and whoever knows that they can handle that end up doing that. Uh, and as you grow, your engineering departments silo themselves, uh, give that sort of expertise. They own components. They own part of the alerting. And so they're able to page fewer and fewer and fewer people. At some point, adding people would slow things down. Yeah, right. absolutely. Uh, and it's one of the things that in a growing company, the incident commander ends up doing, which is uh, you can call for more people to join and lend a hand, but there's also the opportunity of saying like, oh, we have enough people, please step back. Especially if you know or you feel that the incident is going to be a long one, it's going to be like 10, 12 hours, maybe more. Right. Uh, then you can start thinking about, you know what, go rest, because if this gets to be longer, we'll need people to take over the next shift or something. Right. We're going to need you again. And it's not even, I mean, there's, there's some degree of doing things, but really you need the pool of knowledge that's going to let you figure out what's going on. Yeah. What's the trade-off between, you know, you've got people who are experts in their area of stuff, but you also don't want to call on those same experts over and over again, right? How do you balance between people who are, you know, letting the people who are on call, like take a swing, maybe like fail a couple of times or like, like run into a wall before, before you escalate, like how do you decide when to escalate? I think this is one of the strong attributes of an incident commander is knowing who knows what or has a decent idea about, you know, my own knowledge ends there, but this or that person or these people know about it and I can call upon them to help me in such a situation. Mm -hmm. So there's this aspect of management of, of that in there, but it helps to have also the longer term view of the incidents. There's a lot of people talking about things like hero culture, where the same people answer the incidents all the time. And if you validate that and give it a lot of value, you end up with that concentration of the same people dealing with all the incidents and having all the knowledge to deal about them burning out. Right. Right. In the Phoenix Project, this is Brent. I have I have a blog post about this where it's, it's the purple developer who knows everything and looks like a 10x developer, but it's really just their knowledge. Hmm. And Charity, I love that you mentioned that the people on call probably don't have the knowledge. And, and that's so important because as a developer, I feel like I don't want to be on call until I know what to do in all situations. Right. But the thing is, you don't get there without being on call. Even the experts are not usually in a place where they know what's going on. They're just better at using their tools to figure it out because they figured out like similar problems before. Right. Everything is a map that's like hyper-connected and you'd never have the ability to know what makes sense. 
incidents and things like chaos engineering and these kinds of things let you highlight the portions of the web of connections that are actually significant mm. uh, and useful in these incidents. So the incidents are one of the best ways to learn about how the system works because they tell you how it breaks down. And the way we have mental models is that we're very, very happy to have an incomplete and you know inaccurate mental model so long as the decisions we make with it are good. And the incidents are one of the best parts where we figure out, oh, my mental model is not right at all. It ends up being a collective opportunity to repair that stuff that's happening. Mm-hmm. So I, I sort of feel that, yeah, an incident commander has to uh, have an understanding about that. Who knows what? Who's been answering the same thing all the time? And sometimes in the people management you might do, especially if it's not the most you know, important incident in the world, you can let people take a stab at things and try a few times, but prepare your experts to take over if it doesn't go super well. Oh, or maybe say, hey, person on call who doesn't have a ton of experience, you go ask this person and let them build that relationship and build that knowledge. And yes, that takes longer than you as the IC asking them. But if the world isn't completely on fire, it's totally worth it for building future response. What is the difference in how we respond to incidents that are external facing versus ones that are, you know, they're broken, but like, like users aren't able to tell yet. There's two sorts of perspectives in that one. One of them is that the code does not know what is public or private, right? It just is broken. And so the steps required to fix it technically shouldn't have a concern about whether it's public or not. It should be the same sort of response regardless what happened. Uh, in practice, the bigger difference is going that it creates a stress and importance in the situations that everyone is sort of aware of. So the social side of the system is very aware. Yeah, yeah. The, the, you can't make an abstraction out of that. Things are on fire for a reason. And we're going to tell ourselves that, you know, it's just software. Nobody's going to die. It happens sometimes that people die indirectly of what happens. But we don't like that idea in general. It helps to have a lower stress to say like, oh, that's one of the incidents. It's under the budget or something like that. Under the error budget? Yeah, yeah. yeah under the error budget. If you're using SLOs and you have an error budget, it's possible that you're being paid because it's burning fast, but you're still having some capacity. And, you know, there's ways to relax yourself and lower the stakes while still having to answer the incident the same way it is. The other perspective is one where, you know, incidents are a normal part of operating complex systems written in software or not. And for me, that's one of the interesting perspectives in that incident command. Mm -hmm. It's not an incident that is going to happen once and then never again. I'm going to make sure that it never happens again and that, you know, everyone's going to live ever happily after. Yeah, tell that to the firefighters. (laughs) Yeah, this incident is going to be followed by another one and another one and another one. And so the way you manage this one, if you have in mind that you're going to have other incidents, changes things from the panic of saying, oh, crap, things are on fire. We messed up. We have to fix it and not lose face. It's part of a cycle of things that are going to keep happening. And so that's where I think that perspective of managing a bit of who responds to what to share the experience around becomes really interesting. This incident, you take a bit of a loss on it to take a bit more time because you know it's going to help you in the future as well. Yeah. I also think about that when it comes to like pairing. Like it takes longer to pair. Like when you're an expert at something, it takes longer if you bring someone along with you. But I think that it's, you know, often it's worth the time because it's, it's, easy to tell someone what you did, um, but pairing with them and like, you know, maybe having them drive while you consult with them or something 
is a much better way of making sure that they're prepared to handle it themselves the next time. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about severities. <laughs> yeah. Dude, what's up with trying to like take all these aspects of the consequences of an incident and cram them into one number? <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things that I dislike tremendously about severities, right? When there's a metric, there's usually a thing you measure because it's easy to measure. And then there's the thing you're actually concerned with, which is different, right? It's the idea that uh, we want nine nines of uptimes or five nines of uptimes or four nines of uptime because we assume that uh, response time and being available correspond to user happiness, right? Or user satisfaction. And if it's not there, then your metric is not necessarily going to be useful. Mm. The severity is kind of playing that same role where the severity tells you how concerned you should be about the incident, uh, the level of response you should have, how many departments, how many people should be involved with this, how serious are we going to be about the action items that might come up after that, how thorough are we going to be in the investigation. And that just gets all boiled down to that level one, two, three, four, five, which you know might make sense at the natural disaster level where you have to get the resources from five different government agencies or something like that. Oh, okay. So for like a fire or an earthquake. Yeah. So comparing the severity of one earthquake to another kind of makes sense. And even then, that's different because none of them are going to be the same earthquake as the last one, right? They're not going to be in the yeah. same place. Not the same things are going to break. The response is going to be different. And, and so there's this vision where a lot of severity has to do with the impact and the other one where the severity has to do with the resources that you need to help solve this issue. And both of them look into that number from one to five or zero to five, depending on where you're at, and they conflate all of them. And so you see the number and you try to have the appropriate reaction with that. And in most software environments, uh, which are much smaller than you know natural disasters, the early incident is spent discussing which severity this should be because these definitions always vary and are not the same. And so personally, for the longest time possible, I want to avoid having these severities because we can manage calling people into the incident or out of it without that. Uh, severity might be a bit interesting later on to help communicate the severity to people external to response to know like the level of importance we assign to some things that have been discovered during the incident. But at the level where it's all people in a single company in roughly the same three or four time zones, I don't know that the severity is that useful as a tool. Yeah. Is it useful for like retrospectively, just like, you know, analyzing like how well are we doing? Like, you know, how often are we you know exceeding our SLOs? Like, do we need to shift more? engineering time away from, you know, product development towards reliability work. Yeah, I think so. There's, this is the feedback loop, right? The people who are on call and operating the system are sort of the people living on the edge mm -hmm. of all the decisions that have been made by the organization until that point. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. There's this idea that uh, if you deploy more carefully or less often, you're going to have fewer incidents, that deploys are correlated with incidents. And that's really a garbage idea, right? What the deployment uh, does is put in production yeah. all the assumptions you had during development time and all the practices that you had, and now you find about it. And you know the, the bug or the misunderstanding lives in the code base, whether you deploy it or not, and lives in your people's head, whether you deploy it or not. Yeah. So the incidents, uh, if you want them to be productive, have to be a source of learning about how we got into that situation. 
they cannot be a thing about, oh, we need to be more careful about writing tests. We didn't have enough tests, right? The question that's more interesting is what made us believe at the time that we had enough tests at this point? And I recall a previous job asking that question and people just telling me, well, we knew we were shipping garbage code this time around, but the time pressures to ship were just that strict. And so, you know, people in management can ask these developers to be more careful all the time. They know that they are cutting corners because that's what the organization rewards. Yeah, that's so true. You know, most people, their production systems, they are systems they've never understood, right? And every day they ship more code uh, to these systems that they don't understand and to these systems that they've never understood. And it just accumulates like a fucking hairball. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, and it's just like, like, I love the way you put that. It's the accumulation of all the decisions that, they, that you've ever made. And it's so true because like, you know, as human beings, when we get scared or we get nervous or we want to be careful, what do we do? We slow down, right? We're like, okay, I'm going to like, you know, slow down, get my balance, you know, hold on tight. But like in software, that's exactly the opposite because in software, speed is safety. Like the continual slow, you know, the continual like swift, like turnaround of shipping smaller diffs, but like more often having a very small interval between when you wrote it and when it's live and looking at it, that's what keeps you safe. Like slowing down is going to fuck you up. It's the rate at which you get feedback, right? The reason we tend to slow down is that there's too much information coming in too fast and we want to slow down to be able to perceive all of it. Mm. In software, when you tend to go faster, you tend to get uh, smaller magnitudes of feedback much more frequently. So you don't have to dig as much to understand what has been going on between them. Mm -hmm. So the speed is about, I think, increasing the granularity of the feedback you get. Granularity. That's really good. Yeah, because it's not about, it turns out not to be about uh, going slower. It means going smaller. Going smaller helps us stay safer. Yeah. Mm. And that happens to have faster deployments. Sometimes it feels like it's slower feature development on your laptop anyway. You can get that feature done faster on your laptop in one big step. But then I love how Fred points out that the deployment puts the assumptions into the real world. Uh, so putting off deployment is hoarding those assumptions and hiding everything that's wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they rot. They get more wrong. They, yeah. they go sour and then they rot very quickly. Yeah. Uh, you know, the longer that happens is that you also build on these assumptions. And so you just have more and more brittle foundations as you accumulate stuff on top of them. Mm-hmm. And no matter how quickly you're shipping things, like I think that if you don't go and look at it, if you aren't instrumenting as you write your code, if you don't go and look at it in production, because it's not just the code, it's the intersection of that code on top of that infra at this point in time with these particular users. And if you don't close the loop by going and examining it, you don't actually know what you shipped because our, our systems are resilient to a lot of bugs and errors and problems, right? That, that they're never going to rise to the level of paging you until maybe someday they do. Some huge combination of them. Right. Or, or they've just like been festering forever and finally they like tip over, right? But most problems start out very small and they're there if you go and look for them. But a lot of people don't. And a lot of people don't have the tooling that would even let them do so if they wanted to. Or the time. Because that feature work, man, it must march forward. Generally, having this awareness within the organization, and by within the organization, I mean within engineering, but also the other departments, is one of the things that I think creates that psychological safety for people being on call. 
Hmm. It's going to be really, really hard as you know, incident commander or person on call just to say, don't worry, it's an incident. It's normal if everybody else through the rest of the organization is breathing down your neck asking like, what the hell is wrong? Why did this mess up? We have something very important going on. Please fix it. I don't care how, just fix it. Right. And having that broad understanding that these issues happen and are part of it, I think, is one of the things that makes being on call a lot simpler and easier it's not a personal fault to be handling this. It's a service you give to other people around and it can be anyone's turn. And having that perception just makes things a lot better and easier for everyone involved. It removes a lot of stress because you don't have the impression that you, you've been messing up by being there. So shared ownership of code, I imagine, helps with that because then your troubleshooting is a service to the whole team instead of a personal failure. I mean, the concept of a personal failure is, I I hate to take that term because that's going to sound like really academic, but it's a social construct that you have. The failures we see are failures we build. They're not there to be discovered. They're there for us to interpret. And so we can decide that, you know, someone fucked up and that's the reason of the bug and that's where you stop. You can decide that, you know, that person was under these pressures and something happened and the interpretation that you take whether it is that they were put in an unsafe system, it was their fault, it was management's fault. It's just how things tend to happen. Are things that we choose as investigators and as organization to validate as acceptable or not. And the opposite of that which is the Construction of risk is the same thing. What do we think is an acceptable risk? What do we consider dangerous or normal is also a thing that we collectively within an organization agree on as a definition. And so if we tend to construct faults as being personal failures, there's very little to do to bring personal safety, uh, psychological safety back. You're in a situation where it's all your fault. And, And even if as an organization, you're working hard to give that psychological safety and you don't put blame on people, there's still all that social conditioning that we have to we have to somehow counteract. Blame is always going to be there because there's this sense of a slight or an injustice or something. It's a feeling you can't avoid the same way you can't avoid feeling bad if it's a public incident more than when it's a private one. Like it's always going to be there and there's ideas of blame awareness about that. There's also something I like to call the shallow blamelessness, where you decide that we don't name <laughs> we don't name anybody, but the fault is still with someone fucking up somewhere. Right? Ah. It's just like you're not getting the retribution, but the blame is still on the person in the system without naming names. All you got was anonymity, right? Yeah, and so you know, anonymity is like step one to avoid having issues of people being mad or something like that. But the opposite of that is you know. Do you have a better blameless or blame-aware culture when you are free to name people and you know nothing bad's going to happen to them? Yeah. Or, or the other day, I screwed up something at Honeycomb and somebody popped in to uh, Slack with, this is screwed up. And I was like, that was my bad. And I had no fear about like saying that because all the feedback was, let's do it differently in the future. It's one of the things that's tricky about an incident is how do we make sure this never happens again? And usually before you're even started with the incident review, people have taken the most critical action items and already put them in practice, right? The proper thing is how do we make sure that the next incident is going to be handled better based on what we have learned in this one? What are the good things about having incidents? Why should we value them? Because they are always going to happen. 
right? And so it's one of the things where you have diverging forces within an organization, multiple priorities, and you have to make uh, compromises and trade-offs and some of these decisions, and they're not always going to be right, and things might be pulling in different directions. So you have to value them as good opportunities to better introspect the way you work, the way things are happening in your organization, and to adjust and better adapt in the future. Like they become that sort of opportunity. And it's easy to say that, I think, in the software world, because a lot of our incidents are low stakes. It's harder to say, like, we should be thankful for earthquakes because they let us get better building codes. That doesn't fly through that easily. Yeah, I also think of it in terms of just like, you know, it's a sign that we're we're doing things. We're making progress. Like just, you know, maybe causes because you, you did something like it was it was, it was change that needed to happen. Like we don't want people to feel afraid. Yeah. Yeah. People were very much keep doing stuff. Yeah. Keep doing stuff. If, if you aren't breaking things, you know, to some extent, you know, if you aren't, then you probably aren't like making as much change as you could be or you, or you should be. Right. Like I remember at Linden Lab, we used to, whenever people would join like the, the backend team, like we would, we would crown them their very first time they caught as an outage, you know, we'd give them the, the, the Shrek years and they would get to, and it sounds kind of, you know, some people were like, oh, that sounds mean, but it's like, no, it was an opportunity for us all to learn about what was going on in the system. We would praise people like, oh yeah, you're really one of us now. Like you've, you've made the backend go down, you know, because people were so afraid of it that we kind of like, we leaned into it by, by celebrating it. Like, ah, you're, you're not really one of us until like you've made this thing go down because otherwise it, people were like paralyzed. Like they didn't want to, they wouldn't, didn't want to break anything. They didn't want to be the cause of anything bad happening. And so, you know, I think reframing it in terms of just like anyone who's doing anything real and hard is going to cause things to break. It's just like an in, in inevitability. Um, it can be helpful. Yeah, we've had super interesting discussions about picking the right OKRs, the objectives for a quarter or something. And we had discussions about like the incident count. And we ended up shying away from that from the usual reasons of people under declare things that might be happening. Uh, but the other one is just wanting to take a more positive framing around this, which is you should have uh, success factors that depend on the things you manage to do and not necessarily on the things that you wish hadn't happened. And so the question there is, uh, you don't necessarily prevent incidents. How do we pick objectives that have more to do with what makes uh, what we believe is an adequate response to incidents and they're learning from that? That's a better objective than trying to prevent them from happening at all costs. A lot of small incidents is so much healthier than a few big ones. Yeah, there's an idea that there's a good pacing. It's like exercise. If you do it too little often, then you forget, you get rusty, you're not really good at it. If it's all the time, always, then you get extremely tired and you need to rest and you burn your people out. So there's such a thing as a healthy pace for incidents where you have smallish or manageable incidents frequently enough. And if you don't have them enough naturally, that's where things like chaos engineering becomes interesting. You have to keep uh, current with practice. Yeah. yeah. And it, you mentioned that that people uh, get, they really want to know, how do we make sure this never happened again? But if you can ask instead, how do we make sure stuff like this is less of a big deal? When this kind of thing happens again, how do we make it smaller? You can assuage whole categories of fear. It's more productive as well, right? Yeah. Uh, there's this idea with people doing phishing or social engineering for security tests where you start with the idea that you know oh you click the bad email shame on you all the time 
And the more productive exercise in that one is you start with the assumption that someone's account has been compromised. Now what? How do you deal with that? It's going to happen sooner or later. You wish it wouldn't, but you want to be prepared when it actually does. And that's a much more constructive way to prepare for the incidents. Prevention is always making sense, right? The, the ROI of a fire alarm is hard to evaluate, but it turns out to be really, really useful. Did you mean the alarm itself, the, the dinging thing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You don't know, you know, how much am I going to save money by having a fire alarm? It's like, I don't know. It depends on if you have a fire or something like that. It's uncountable. <laughs> uh, but well, we'll just tell people to be more careful and then we won't have fires and then we don't need these fire alarms. Exactly. <laughs> Right. So these practices have the assumption that you don't want to fire, but you want to be ready if it ever happens. Right. It's that sort of thing where you don't want it to happen, but you have to be prepared anyway. Right. The concept of SLOs is great because I think a lot of people feel like the goal is always to reach 100 percent. Right. Like the goal is to always like you have all the time, et cetera. And, and like if you exceed an SLO, well, great. But like we operate a little bit differently. Right. Like what, what do we do with the budgets when we've gone over? The beauty of the SLOs we have is that they're self-selected, right? And uh, for some of them, when we run over the budget, uh, the critical thing is really to have this conversation with your team at first, but at some point to bring it up higher in the organization. And we had that case recently at Honeycomb where uh, after a few weeks, if not months, of having SLOs that were really, really hard to meet, we had stopped answering them as seriously as everything else. We had perfectly good explanations for why they were burning faster. The aspirational value of it was not matching the sort of stresses we were having in the system for real. And in practice, we were just disregarding them. We had the on-call handoff weekly discussing this with each other and saying, like, this one's going to burn in two days. Just reset it, put it into the SLO reset log where we track the explanations and all the burn rates that we've had to have that sort of history of what we were doing in the past with the SLOs. Mm. And at some point we just said, you know what, there's a reason why we're not meeting these. Sometimes it has to do with the organization's priorities. There are stressors in different parts of the systems that we're addressing already. This one is going to keep burning. And so we just got rid of the SLO and relaxed them and uh, mm. sent a bigger communication upward the chain in the company saying, you know what, we are no longer meeting this. Uh, we are not actually going to be paid for that. We're going to think about how we model uh, what we think is acceptable performance and quality and then come back to you. But, you know, we have to change a few things. And that communication up the chain is one of the really, really interesting parts of that, having that discussion following up the SLO of saying, those are the objectives. We were meeting them. We're not meeting them anymore. And it cannot be resolved as a part of being page while on call. What do we do now? So instead of repeating pages and resetting, you push this reality up the chain of, look, this is how things are. If you want it to be different, let's shift priorities. Yeah, we, we need to talk about it. Like, yeah. and, and at some point, it's one of the realities that I think engineers want to do good work. And we like to have more nines than can be necessary. And we like to have better uptime than what might be the actual objective of the organization you're in. And, you know, getting the extra nine or going back to the nine you used to have might require, I don't know, seven figures of investment in people time. But it's very, very possible that this is not actually a priority in your organization. They want to increase revenue, ARR, user acquisition, any other metric you want to choose. That might be a higher priority. 
And there's something really, really unhealthy for your engineering culture to try to hit targets that don't align with what the organization actually wants, because you're just burning yourself out and you're never going to get the actual support you need on that. Right. And so when you see that disconnection, for me, it's super important to bring it back up the chain because it might be that they had no idea that you are no longer meeting the standards and then there's going to be an investment that's required for that. Or it might be that they never cared to hit it to the level you wanted it to have, at which point, great, relax that, stop paging people right. for things that don't matter to them. It's that social conceptualization of risk. Again, how do we consider this to be risky, good or bad? There's an agreement to be had. Mm-hmm. And it's different from just the engineer wanting to have the most solid system ever because that's what looks really, really cool online. Right. Bragging rights. Well, I think we're bad at a time, but um, like, what would you recommend that people, you know, who don't have ICs, who don't really, people who are in very reactive modes, right? Where just like you get paged things are down and, and you work all night and stuff like, where should people start? Uh, the hardest part is to take a break and look at the things that we're seeing right now, right? Is there a feeling of panic right now? Do I feel overwhelmed? Are there things that stress me out that I don't know how to do? Is there a feeling that things are chaotic and everything like that? And, you know, raising your hand and saying like, oh, I'm noticing this. What are we going to do about that? And starting the conversation is usually step one. Yeah. We're really, really good at reading the room, even though we might be remote and engineers who are not reputed to be able to do that. But there's this idea that if everyone seems to be on a death march, you're going to get on the death march as well. And it's very possible that just raising your hand is a great way to stop that. And if you do and you're burning out and nothing seems to be going all right, then that's a very, very good signal if they are, uh, the rest of the organization is perfectly happy to burn engineers nonstop. Right. That is a very good point. Your life, your mental health, your sleep are precious things. And you're in a place that, where those things are being taken for granted. That's not good. Yeah. I mean, people who are healthy, uh, either physically or mentally, are, I assume, in a better position to respond to stressful situations like incidents. So the long-term health of your team is also the long-term health of your response. Yep. People often, I think, feel like, the health and happiness of engineers and customers are like in some way opposed to each other. Like engineers should be like burning themselves in the pyre or like in order to, to make customers happy. But in my experience, like, you know, in anything but the immediate short term, like the health and happiness of engineers and customers almost always rises and falls in tandem with each other. Right. You can't have a long-term sustainable. Our job is to make decisions. Yeah. And we can make better decisions when we're okay. Absolutely. You don't have happy customers when engineers are miserable or vice versa. It's one of the places where we still have the benefit of generally not, you know, having high stakes of people dying when things go up because you don't have to make that decision of either I burn myself out or people die. It's either I burn myself out or people miss their quarter or, you know, they're unhappy with the website. It's a lot easier to make that decision and we should probably cherish that and, uh, Treat it like we have that option rather than it's not life or death most of the time. Completely agree. It's great to have the ethics of thinking there could be dire consequences of doing a bad job. But yeah, we have that ability to uh, prioritize ourselves without necessarily feeling terrible about it from an ethical standpoint. That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed and hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest in the show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. 
To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.